Hi, uh, good evening. Uh, welcome to the LSE uh, Literary Festival. Um, my name is Charlie Beckett. I run uh, a think tank here at the uh, London School of Economics called POLIS. It's a journalism, an international journalism think tank, uh, which provides a, a forum for research and discussion about uh, the news media uh, in the world today. And of course, um, with events in the Middle East, it's, it's uh, apparent that uh, media has never been more important really and never more uh, interesting as a factor in what happens across the world especially at times of crisis and perhaps at a time um, of conflict and even wars. Um, I'm really really pleased um, that so many of you turned out tonight on a Friday evening um, and I'm sure that's got nothing to do with me it's got to do with the fact that we've got three fantastic uh, journalists, I think of them as journalists first, fantastic journalists but also uh, wonderful writers uh, to talk about their latest uh, efforts. Um, but I'm also particularly pleased to welcome our chair tonight, Kirsty Lang, who is herself a wonderful journalist, uh, somebody who's been a foreign correspondent for newspapers, but also for television. Uh, from where I knew Kirsty, we were colleagues at Channel 4 News at ITN. Uh, and she is somebody who brings um, a rare sort of humanity, wit, and intelligence to the art of journalism, now works of course at the BBC as a presenter on Radio 4, so also brings a whole range of cultural understanding to, to the affair tonight. Um, basically, <coughs> the evening is going to be made up of uh, three shortish readings uh, from the writers, uh, and then Kirsty's going to interrogate them somewhat, but it's very much with an, a view to uh, you getting a chance to engage as well. So if you've got any questions, get them ready, and Kirsty will bring, it, bring, bring you in as well. But thanks very much for coming, and thanks for Kirsty. Over to you. Thank you, Charlie. Um, well, as Charlie said, uh, my guests tonight are uh, three very distinguished, um, and um, I would say um, very brave, um, even occasionally foolhardy <laughs> foreign correspondents who have worked in some of the most uh, dangerous parts of the world. Um, they have all written um, very different books, so we're going to be having a discussion that ranges from Mexico to Afghanistan to West Africa tonight, but I think they've also all got points in common. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce um, uh, our three guests. Um, uh, first of all, uh, James Browser, who's a BAFTA and Emmy-nominated documentary maker whose films for the BBC and Channel 4 have focused on some of the world's um, most hostile environments, rats, Malia, um, and uh, the very, very nasty um, civil wars uh, that took place in Liberia and uh, Sierra Leone, which is indeed the inspiration for his book, uh, My Friend the Mercenary, which is a memoir of, about a very unlikely um, friendship that James struck up with um, a South African uh, mercenary, and he's going to tell us about that. Jill McGivering is a senior uh, foreign news correspondent for the BBC. She was based in uh, Delhi for quite a long time, covering uh, South Asia. Now she's back in London, but she still travels extensively uh, for the BBC um, in places like Afghanistan and China. She is going to be talking about her first novel. Um, well, I should say first published novel, because Jill's actually told me before that she'd written a number of novels that just hadn't been published. <laughs> um, it's called The Last Kestrel, and it's set in Helmand province in Afghanistan. Um, Ed Bermi is a senior correspondent for the Guardian Observer, who's twice been named International Reporter of the Year for his work in Bosnia, in Italy, in Iraq, in the United States, 
and most recently in Mexico. His book, A Mexica, War Along the Borderline, is a journey along the front line of the Mexican drug wars, which have claimed uh, the lives of, I think, something like 28,000 people. Is it 34 now? I've got the death <coughs> Unbelievable. In, that's in just four years. Um, um, and it took Ed to the most, I think it's the most dangerous city in the world now, isn't it, to your dad? Statistically. Statistically. Um, anyway, uh, let's start uh, with James. He's going to talk about his book and uh, give us a brief read. Right. Right. Well, forgive me if I'm a little hesitant. I'm not used to such a large audience. I work mainly for Channel 4. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the sort of tentative title of this um, session is New Ways of Witnessing War, um, which is tricky, actually, given that my book's about a mercenary, which is the world's second oldest profession. Um, but I, one, as a journalist, I guess, one, one new way of witnessing war is to, um, is to agree to join in. I'll just give a short reading from the beginning. <clears throat> in the last cell, a man is screaming on the floor. His hands have been cuffed tightly behind his back. His legs have been pinned at the ankles with shackles, which have been hammered shut by the soldiers. Skin and muscle split as metal bites down to bone. Boots stamp on his feet, ripping out toenails. The prisoner's name is Nick de Toy. He is South Africa's most notorious mercenary and one of my best friends. Nick confessed before this torture began, in public, at gunpoint, in accurate, extensive detail, a day after he was seized. Now he no longer knows nor cares what he confesses to. His story shifts to fit the fantasies of his jailers, but it is a desperate, pointless game. In this ramshackle collection of wooden huts and concrete cells, fenced off from the sea and the world beyond by rolls of barbed wire, Nick's tormentors are not seeking the truth. They want revenge. Nick is dragged up from the stone floor and forced to kneel. The commander enters the cell and puts a pistol to his head. He has come to execute him, but the gun is empty. Laughing, the guards knock him unconscious with their rifle butts. The same ritual is repeated over and over again. Nick is left to the mercy of the rats in his tiny 5x7 cell. His hands and feet remain chained. Like an animal, he eats scraps of food from the floor where he must also sleep and defecate. There is no daylight. He is kept in pitch darkness and beaten daily. And then the septicemia sets in. Pus oozes from his open wounds sustaining the cockroaches that feast on his sores. By the time he is dragged outside, his eyes have sealed shut. <clears throat> the soldiers immerse his head in freezing water and then rip the scabs from his eyes. This is how Nick begins his 34-year sentence in Blackbeach Prison, Africa's most notorious jail. He was sentenced on the 8th of March 2004, along with 15 other men as he tried to overthrow the government of Equatorial Guinea, a tiny West African country fabulously rich in oil. But there is just one person missing from the scene. What Nick doesn't see when he opens his eyes that day is me. Had all gone according to plan, 
I could have been lying next to him. I was supposed to film the coup. The um, the book is really uh, it's 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 actually two things simultaneously. It's 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 a memoir, so it's uh, you know my experience of my friendship with Nick and the events that brought us very close together and then ultimately separated us. Um, but it's also a biography. It's a biography of Nick um, as well. So it's kind of two things in in one thing. And what really the sort of the stem that runs through the book, the spine of the book, is my is my friendship with Nick. And I kind of wanted to do that because you know to write essentially it's a book about warfare told through the lens of friendship. And it, it struck me that you know. Warfare in West Africa at that time was, was <coughs> which I'll come on to in a second, was, it was extremely violent, very visceral, and, and 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 very difficult to witness. And you know, there's a as a journalist, I think there's a sort of a danger of preaching to the choir. You know, there are a small number of people who have had probably equivalent experiences, and you can write in such a way that people will recognise what you're saying. There are really a large number of people who, you know, have never been to war, never been to West Africa. It's very hard for people to access that kind of material. So, um, I figured that everyone has a best friend, and everyone has a friend at some point that's asked them to do something which is either ridiculous, dangerous, or downright unpleasant. But because they're your best mate, you agreed, or you've said you'd agree. So on the basic principle that everyone has that kind of common experience, I wanted to make the war that I covered in West Africa um, accessible. So the reason that Nick and I ended up there, or rather Nick ended up there and I, by a very kind of narrow chance, didn't end up next to him, um, was that we'd become incredibly good friends. And that process of us becoming friends had started when I was starting out my career in television journalism. Um, I've been a stills photographer um, up to this point, and um, I was beginning a, t a career in TV. And I shot stills in Sierra Leone at the end of the war in Sierra Leone, and I'd met the, the remnants of the South African mercenary force that had fought with executive outcomes. And speaking to them, and you know, I'd sort of kept in contact with them after that job had ended. And they'd said to me, one man in particular, that there was a war going on in neighbouring Liberia, in the north of Liberia. It was an entirely unreported conflict. No one was able to get in on the rebel side. No one was able to say really what was happening. And there were massive pitch battles being fought only, you know, sometimes 50 miles away from UN peacekeepers in Sierra Leone, British troops in Sierra Leone, at that time the largest peacekeeping deployment on earth. It seems to me extraordinary that there was this massive war going on and no one was reporting on it. And for me at the time, was, you know, just beginning my career in TV journalism, it was just an offer of an extraordinary scoop. So pursuing this story with um, this South African guy, he said, you know, the thing is that actually um, there are a couple of issues here, one of which is that, you know, no disrespect, but you're going to be working a long way behind rebel lines if they let you in. There's no backup, there's no support. You're going to need someone who can look after you. You're going to need someone that can protect you. So his idea was that he would hook me up with one of his old military commanders, Nick Detoy. Well, 
Great. Turns out that Nick was a former colonel in South Africa Special Forces in the Reconnaissance Commandos. In fact, he'd been the founding father of Five Recce, which is one of the most notorious um, military units in the apartheid army. And he arranged for me to meet Nick, so we sat down with each other. And I agreed to take Nick to Liberia with me as my bodyguard um, to look after me. It was one of those sort of beginnings of a friendship that came totally out of the blue. You know, I had a, a very kind of liberal upbringing in London. I was brought up to kind of regard the apartheid regime in South Africa as sort of the, the moral equivalent of um, the Nazi party in Germany. And here, suddenly sitting down with, um, with Nick was really disarming because, you know, I was expecting a really kind of roughly tufty mercenary, a sort of, you know, kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger lookalike, because um, Nick had also been a, a mercenary commander in, in, in West Africa with the executive outcomes deployment. And in fact, actually, Nick presented himself as an incredibly mild-mannered, very polite, almost diminutive figure. You know, he's turned up wearing neatly pressed, ironed chinos, the striped shirt with a row of pens in his top pocket and a little notepad. And he, I mean, he really looked like he was going to sell me life insurance <laughs> and not actually protect my life. You know, I mean, it was extraordinary <coughs> business. At that time, I was um, blissfully unaware of the history of um, five reconnaissance and um, what they uh, charmingly termed pseudo-operations, um, which, in other words, was a, a litany of um, very controversial military engagements across Southern Africa. Um, on behalf of the apartheid state, and I hired him. It's great. It then subsequently transpired, of course, that um, the rebels were partly being run by U.S. intelligence, and that um, the Americans were extremely keen indeed on the fact that I was going to be with the rebels with this man who knew exactly how to take um, GPS coordinates of all of the interesting things that US intelligence found um, that they would um, like to know about. So there immediately developed a very strong relationship between US intelligence, Nick and myself in accessing the story in the first place. But what happened was, it was my first TV gig, a uh, big TV gig like this, so I went in and, and um, I was advised to impress the rebels. So don't just turn up with a little camera turn up with a cameraman, a big camera, a sound man, you've got your bodyguard, so you are the big boss, you're in charge of all these people, and then they'll take you seriously as a result. Fabulous. So we got, it's supposed to be a three-week trip, we had a three-week contract, we got in, we were there for three weeks, hadn't shot a thing. The cameraman and the sound man said, well that's great, our contracts are up, we're off, thank you very much. So the rebels escorted them out. And I hadn't got a film, you know, I spent thousands and thousands of pounds of someone else's money and uh, did not have even the semblance of a film. The cameraman got to the edge of the jungle, turned around and said, oh, actually, look, gave me his mini DV camera, little thing like that, box of 20 tapes, couple of spare batteries and a charger. I said, good luck. Um, oh, and there's the instruction manual. Thank you very much. So Nick and I sat down and read the instructions together, worked out how to use the camera. Um, then the production company went bust. And um, after another two weeks, I then had to go back to Nick and say, I'm really sorry about this, but not only have we not filmed anything, um, not only can I patently not use a video camera, but I can't pay you. 
and that's a really interesting conversation to have with a heavily armed mercenary who at that point <laughs> had about 300 rounds of ammunition strapped to his um, custom recce webbing and a Kalashnikov over his knees. Much to my surprise, Nick agreed to carry on with me, unpaid. We then spent um, three months at war together. We went down to the front line and um, spent 28 days continuously in combat. We filmed the war in Liberia from the rebel side, the only, pe well, the only people ever to do so. Um, <coughs> we went back on multiple trips, and as a result of that friendship, Nick made me the offer of filming the coup. But um, all uh, field trips have great consequences to them, whether you realise what they are at the time or not. The consequence of my friendship with Nick was that, you know, he ended up involving me in something in a, in a, in a very large, frankly, criminal enterprise. Um, but there are other implications as well to our friendship. And just very quickly end with a reading from the end of the book. She's after several years of filming the war in West Africa and after Nick's arrest. Sometimes at night, my daughter calls for me. Her cries of daddy rise in the short time it takes me to reach her bedroom. Her way of asking for me is half statement, as if by saying my name I must appear, and half question, the slight lift in her voice at the end, questioning when, if I will come at all. Her room is a warm, rich funk of milk and biscuits. My hand on her tangled hair guides her back to bed, collecting a film of sweat shed over her night terrors. Sometimes I think of Rocket and the other children we saw laid to waste and of how fragile our assumptions of safety are. I decided months ago that I would not tell her about the war, about what happens in war, about what happened to me in that war and everything that came out of it until she knows that nothing can shake the walls around us until she is no longer a child. Once, when she was barely two years old, she found me crying in our living room as I struggled to swallow the stone that rises up sometimes and catches me when I least expect it. She stopped playing and put her hand on my knee. It's okay, Daddy. Everything's okay, she told me, her eyes searching out the reason for my tears. I knew then when my grandfather, Don, had drip-fed his war to me in careful, deliberate doses. He never mentioned the screams, his screams, that tore through his sleep. He never demanded that I share the burden of his memories, not even at the end. Bella is asleep again before the door closes. Outside I listen and wait for the wet click, click, click of her dummy to stop. Her jaw slackens into silence and I am left alone on the landing. During nights like this I have found myself standing in the unlit bed bathroom next door, chasing my reflections among the confusion of shadows thrown by the trees outside. I think of the afternoon when I undressed in front of the cracked hotel mirror in Conakry and saw for my first and saw for the first time the damage my body had absorbed after months in the jungle with Nick. I ask who I am, who I was, and what change I might be owed from the cost of all the hubris and bloodletting that became my career. Out of the darkness I try to conjure the dreams that will not come and face the memories that will not go. Nick in his cell, me in my sanctuary. And I ask this too, who is the mercenary?
might have seen the, the, the film um, Blood Diamond, um, which is what most people know about the wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone. They were, it was a particularly brutal conflict. Um, and as you say, you, you saw some awful things. I think you've written that Nick helped me navigate to a place inside myself so dark I could no longer find my way back to normal life. Without him to talk to, it seemed I was completely alone. None of my friends at home could comprehend what it was like to watch a man butchered and eaten in front of you. My attempts to confess the horrors I had seen were dismissed with embarrassed silence. Was writing this book an attempt to make sense of some of the things that you had seen and that you needed to, to deal with? Yeah, very much so, yeah. yeah. I mean, what would have been incredibly frustrating and sort of defining in a way was that all of the <coughs> journalistic endeavours I made subsequent to Nick's arrest to tell the story were necessarily limited by the fact that he was at risk of losing his life if I told the truth. So the point at which Channel 4, for example, asked me to make a dispatches about this story, it was, an, it was a, a poison chalice. And on the one hand, yes, I very much wanted to tell the story because I knew that in my hands, you know, at least Nick would get a fair hearing, but that he was facing the death penalty and I couldn't possibly do anything that would lead to his execution. So it's, it, you know, that's a, from that main focus down to the sort of smaller details of the fact that a lot of the people who I had a very close relationship in, with in US intelligence in this, in this story, um, it wasn't possible really to fully to give a full account of their role in it, and it now is. So I think it was this was the point at which I could finally tell the absolute truth of this entire story, and that has been, I mean, professionally obviously very important, but it's also been personally sort of like a squaring of the account. Really, I think I might give that to St Peter. When you started the book. Presumably, you didn't know how the story was going to finish. Mm. That was um, it was a kind of strange commissioning decision on behalf of Canongate, really, in a way, because they they basically bought a book um, without an ending. Nick was still in jail when I started the book. He was released um, when I was two thirds of the way through, um, and that was a very difficult moment. Um, because I decided that at that point I was all, you know, I was going to tell the truth, warts and all. And it's very easy. There was no more harm that could come to Nick at that point. And it's very easy to kind of make that decision when you haven't had contact with someone and they're locked in a jail cell, and then suddenly when they're standing in front of you to say, "Well, actually, you know, this is what I'm, I'm doing," um, and I did it warts and all and gave him the sort of unexpurgated manuscript and said, you know, there we go. Well, we'll come back to your book in a moment. Let's move on now to um, Jill McGivery. Jill, would you like to give us a short introduction of reading? Thank you. Hard act to follow. Um, I've been a journalist in foreign news, I'm, I'm almost alarmed to realise, for about 25 years now. And a lot of that time I focused or lived in Asia. And for most of the last 10 years I've been doing a lot of reporting on what's happening in Afghanistan. So you might think, well, 
if you've got anything to say, you probably had a chance to say it already as a journalist. But I increasingly found in the last few years going to Afghanistan that there were areas I really wanted to cover in a different sort of way through fiction um, in the hope partly of, of covering different sorts of ground, and I'll talk about that in a second, but also about trying to experience it in a different way and in the hope that readers as well would experience it in a more intimate, emotional way than you can ever hope to do in a news report. It's not appropriate to do in a news report. The Last Kestrel is very much fiction. Uh, it draws on, in a general sense, experiences I've had in Afghanistan, including being embedded with the troops and so on. Um, but the actual characters, the actual stories, the plots and so on, are very much fiction. And I felt ethically it was very important not to exploit or appropriate other people's stories and experiences. Uh, by putting them in my book. I also, as well as wanting to write something that was fast-paced and I hope a page-turner, I want, was very conscious that I think at the moment we're in the process of forming a narrative about what is happening in Afghanistan, a sense of 10 years on, what is it all for, how is it going, can it be won, what would winning even look like? And in that conversation, I was increasingly concerned that I felt that the views of civilians in Afghanistan, and particularly civilians in the South caught up very immediately in the conflict, in rural areas, and particularly women, weren't being as represented as I'd like them to be. Uh, and part of what I wanted to do in the imaginative journey of writing fiction was to try and imagine what it must be like being a female Afghan villager somewhere in the middle of this conflict when the British troops launch an offensive. Uh, and one of my main characters is an Afghan villager, and I say it's something I wanted to experience very immediately, and something I hope the reader would share as well. And it was inspired by a, a particular event. I was with the British troops in um, 2007. I was embedded in Helmand, and they launched what became the um, offensive which, which led to the taking of Musakala. Some of you may remember it, very strategically important at the time, and had a lot of publicity. And I was there for those first couple of days. And they were going into areas which they call the green zone, um, which in effect are areas that are well irrigated in the desert, where there's quite a, a density of population. Um, and I remember standing watching them going in. This was an area that had been held by the Taliban for the previous two years. There was an expectation there'd be a lot of ambushes, uh, an expectation as well that it was probably mined. And it was an area which was just before the harvest time, uh, and I say the green zone. So they were walking in to corn that was eight feet high around them, um, aware that this was land that was held by the Taliban with little rat runs and, and different ditches and so on, um, and really not sure what they were going into. Very dangerous, very tense, and calling in um, air power to try and support them as they did that. And I joined them at the end of that first day in the first village that they'd taken, uh, where a house, um, well, quite a few, but one in particular had been hit um, by um, a 500-pound bomb that they'd called in because they thought they were taking fire from that house, uh, a fairly small, modest compound in the middle of this very poor village. Uh, and as I arrived, they were just digging out the bodies. They thought they would all be militants. It turned out, unfortunately, they were, that awful term, collateral damage. Um, six people, um, two elderly, one was a middle-aged woman, and three quite small children. Obviously, the soldiers were upset about it. That's not why they go to war. I was upset about it because I felt somehow involved with the whole process, although obviously really had very little to do with me as an observer. But it was hard not to feel engaged. And I remember particularly that night, we were lying on the floor in a compound in this captured village. Uh, and it was quite eerie because it was so recently abandoned. 
Most of the villagers, and we never knew why that particular family didn't flee, but most of the villagers left, of course, when the offensive started, uh, a matter of hours earlier. And we were in this compound with the silky ashes of fire that were still warm that they'd just hastily put out as they left, chickens squawking around, other people's possession around us as the military were being very military setting up their communications point and their nets and all the things they've been digging a latrine and the things they do uh, in military style. Uh, and I remember just having a sense of the Afghans who owned that house being somewhere out there in the desert without shelter, probably without food and water, having left very quickly with minimal possessions, now probably knowing that the people that to them were very real, that they'd known children, they'd probably known you know, since they were born, had been killed. And thinking, what, what has that done to their loyalties? What, what do they think of us? And just feeling a very strong sense of this cultural divide. Here are the Brits, the soldiers, sent by all of us, doing the best they can, out there, the Afghans. And, and how on earth does one understand or talk to the other? Um, and that, that really stayed with me when I got home after the reporting and was a theme that became the book, in that there are two main characters. One is not me, but a journalist who's embedded with the British troops, um, who is seeing things from her perspective and from the perspective of the soldiers, and the other is the Afghan village, villager, uh, a woman, who was um, villages um, attacked in an offensive. Um, so although it's very much changed in becoming fiction, that core... Um, element is what really stayed with me and was what I wanted to explore in the book. Sorry, it's contact lens. It's not distress about the um, incident. <laughs> so. I'd like to read you the passage in the book that is closest to that original incident um, to give you some context for it. So Ellen is the name of the correspondent. Um, unlike me, she was actually going through the corn with the um, soldiers and she's with two soldiers, one is called Dylan and one is called Frank. They've been crawling forward towards a village. Uh, they think they, well, they have just taken fire from a house and they've called in air power overhead to try and attack that house. The bomb had hit the side of the building, reducing three of the four walls to piles of rubble. Dylan rose cautiously to his feet. He shielded his mouth and eyes from the swirling dust as he crept forward. He checked the ditches round the edges of the yard. Frank climbed out too and stood, peering into the debris, his weapon raised. All around them, dust was settling. Shapes were starting to form, emerging like ghosts out of the haze. Ellen, lagging behind them, walked on unsteady legs, blast drunk. She pulled out her camera, trying to focus with shaking hands. The back of the house was scattered with sour straw. Frank was kicking at something, the tail and back leg of an animal. Frank kicked it again, a goat, lifeless. He pushed away the mud bricks round it. He prodded the inert body of another goat beside it. A third, more deeply buried, was still alive. Its hindquarters, crushed under the debris, twitched quietly without hope. Frank put his pistol to its head. He looked away as he pulled the trigger. Dylan sat on a mud boulder and lit a cigarette, and Frank went across to join him. Their, their shoulders had slackened and their tone shifted as they talked in low voices. Frank let out a short laugh. They'd half turned their backs on the site as if, for them, the bombing was already in the past. The radios spat static. As she climbed over the debris, the heaps of broken mud shifted and settled under her weight. Her vision was jumping. She wanted to sit still with them, to concentrate on breathing evenly again and thank God she was alive. But she knew she must keep moving and capture what she could while the scene was still raw. 
she started to photograph the wreckage, looking for detail, for human clues. The fourth wall was still almost intact, the interior exposed, naked to the outside world. A cracked mirror in a simple wooden frame hung crookedly from a nail. Scattered hair grips and a comb sat in the narrow shelf that stuck out from the bottom of the frame. Long black hairs were snagged in the comb's teeth. A dark bag and a woman's bright red scarf hung from a second nail to one side. She examined the scarf without touching it. It was cheaply woven, the thread coarse, a typical rural takrai, large enough to cover head and shoulders. It was thick with dust now, but still carried the memory of heavy, spicy scent, homemade perhaps. She took a step away and photographed it all, item by item. She climbed on, sensitive to the shards of broken wall and dirt, as they crunched and gave way in sudden shifts under her boots. More photographs, remnants of possessions. The protruding corner of a battered metal trunk. The leg of an upturned wooden stool. A piece of cloth, a filthy shirt or torn tunic, lying limply. The page of a book, cheaply printed, splattered with grit. Then she stopped. She lifted the camera away from her face to look with her own eyes. Sticking out of the great heap of broken brick, blown up against the remaining wall, was a hand. A small hand, the nails minute, the palm soft and pink. A dusty bracelet, a bangle that might have been silver or tin, showed at its wrist. The rest of the body was hidden. Dylan and Frank, cigarettes in hand, had fallen silent. They were watching her. But she couldn't speak, she couldn't look up, she couldn't lift her eyes from the hand. A child, maybe one of many buried beneath her boots. They'd cleared the area, they'd said. She breathed hard. They'd warned the civilians to leave. The small hand shimmered as she blinked and stared, as if its fingers were reaching towards her, begging to be clasped. She couldn't move. A moment later, Dylan's feet crunched on the mud behind her. His step sounded businesslike, almost jaunty. You all right, he said. What's up? <coughs> she lifted her camera, zoomed in on the hand, and took one picture, then another. She was preserving the hand as efficiently as she could before the men took possession of it. Dylan, close behind her now, swore. He turned away and spat into the dirt, gestured to Frank. They took her by the shoulders and made her stand clear as they prized away the top rocks with their hands, sending them tumbling down the tower of rubble. She stood, watching them as they worked methodically. Corpses were slowly emerging at their feet, small bodies with dirt-encrusted hair, their limbs bloody and crushed. The girls' scarves pinned them in the earth, their necks and chests stretched back to boulders, the material twisted and filthy, slipping through the men's hands as they struggled to tug it free, thick, clumsy fingers playing with dolls. Dylan stopped, straightened up, looked across to Ellen. We were taking fire. His voice was tense. You saw. He picked out a stout piece of wood to use as a lever. They prized off the larger boulders, sending them tumbling down the rubble. The stones were grinding under them. Sweating, they heaved and pushed. Deep in a crack, a flicker of movement. Stop. She raised her hand, craned forward. Frank and Dylan stood side by side, tense and motionless. In that moment of silence, it came again. A low moan, a sound so faint she sensed it more than heard it. She lifted her eyes to the two men who were focused on her, their nerves strained. Quick, she said, someone's alive. Thank you.
fiction? I mean, is it an opportunity for you to explore some of the things that you have witnessed in Afghanistan, for instance, that you that you can't ever get into a you know two three minute news package? It's partly about the scale, yes, about timing, but it's also a totally different sort of writing, and and it's about experiencing it differently. I suppose it's sort of left brain, right brain, isn't it? Um, in that, I think of the reporting world. When I report, I know, I know my limits, I know what I'm doing. I'm writing about things people say and things people have proven, things that I've seen. Um, you know, I, I can report what you've just said to me. I can't report what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're dreaming, what your you flashback to your past and so on, all of that. And I wanted to explore that much more emotional territory with this book, partly as a way of, of trying to think what must it really be like to get inside being in that situation. Heads, Absolutely. Really. It's about being from the inside looking out instead of always from the outside looking in. And they're totally different worlds to me. And, I mean, as you say, it's a completely different form um, uh, of writing. I mean, especially from the sort of writing that you have to do. You know, as I, I know myself, the BBC and in the news bulletins, it's the, the, the brevity. Was it, was it liberating to write fiction or, or, or scary or both? Well, wonderful. To uh, totally different. Uh, so it, it does come from a totally different place. It's a different experience. Uh, and I love the arc of the moral order of fiction. I think there's a danger sometimes as journalists that we, we see people in crisis. We never see them afterwards. We never really understand. It's all about the externals for the reason that we're discussing about the proven. But I think there's a, a pleasure, and perhaps there's a cathartic pleasure with fiction in being able to structure something in a, in a way that you have consequences and moral order. That, um, that if, if somebody behaves in a certain way, you see that play out. And you understand also why there's a moral complexity for them, you know, what, what the things that have formed them and, and led them to make those choices. Um, so it's immensely more satisfying, um, but just totally different. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's art and life, isn't it? They're, they're totally different, different forms, for different, to different tools for different objects. At the centre of your, your novel is uh, the, the relationship between um, Ellen, the British war correspondent, um, and her translator, the fixer, she, she goes back to investigate you know, what, what's happened to him. And uh, just thinking about you know, what, what James uh, was talking about, his relationship with Nick, I mean, one of the things that, that the public never really hear about with journalists is these very central relationships we have to form on the ground when we go into foreign countries, be it with translators, bodyguards, fixers, which are very intense, aren't they? Is that something also you wanted to look at? In this yes. It also became an opportunity, though I didn't, it didn't start off that way, of exploring some of the issues around news and the ethics involved in news, which what I hadn't expected. It felt too close to home. I hadn't originally, when I started the first draft of the book, I didn't want to have a journalist, and then it, it sort of it became a journalist um, for various reasons. And, and one of those ethical dilemmas is to do with those relationships, yes. Partly sometimes to do with... <coughs> being somebody from the developed world in an area which is defined by poverty, whether it's a, a natural disaster or whether it's a war, and the choices you make about engagement, you know, how much do you help the people around you, and how much are you incapable actually of making very much difference to them, and, are, and should you, how much are you just an observer? Whether that's you take them into danger. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, how, and what are their expectations? As I, I often worry that people think that you will help them in, them in particular if they come and tell you their story. And as a journalist, I think often you have to try and comfort yourself when you feel guilty by thinking, well, I'm, I'm trying to help people in this situation by using this person as an example of it. 
but am I really going to help this particular person because they've told me their story and I've got it on the radio? You know, there's only so much we do and, and we're not aid workers at the end of the day and we're not politicians. Um, so there are a lot of those issues. And yes, the relationship with fixers is an important one, especially in Afghanistan. People risk their lives by being engaged with us. No question. Right, we're going to come back to your book uh, at the end, but um, now, um, Ed, it's uh, your turn to get up there and read. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I should have contact lenses with you. No, I don't recommend them. Spectacles. <laughs> um, you know, well, I hate war. Um, I get frightened. Uh, I, I hate violence, and I, I've, I've never uh, sort of willingly gone to one. Um, <coughs> the Guardian was kind enough to send me to Italy in 1990. Brief. I was Southern Europe and the Mediterranean. I was like, this is going to be good. I was told to go to this place, so got a call saying something weird happening in this place called Vukova in Croatia. Perhaps next door to you, maybe could you go and have a look in four years in Croatia and Bosnia, and keeping an eye on Italy, sadly. And then they gave me a second bite of the cherry very kindly again, sent me to New York uh, shortly before September 2001. And um, <laughs> next thing I knew, I was in Iraq. But I. So plan C was to write a book about an extraordinary place that I first went to, to cover when um, George W. Bush, perhaps against what uh, he later went on to do, decided that all the trucks that the Mexicans drive um, up to the border with the United States that account for something like $350 billion worth of trade a year could come into and across the United States. And I became obsessed with, with this borderland. It's a line in the sand, it's harsh, needs must, but it's also the busiest border in the world. A million people cross it every day to shop, to visit relatives, to go to school. Uh, and so it's this dichotomy, this border. <coughs> so when I decided I would call this place a Mexico and one day write a book about it, I, I had no idea it was going to be a book about a war at all. But uh, since I'm a rather unfortunate person to, <laughs> to hang around, it turned out to be about yet another conflict. And I'm going to slightly play around with this, if I may. I, ways to witness new wars rather than what we've got on the board, because it's a very different and new war of a, of a different kind in very much of the 21st century. Get on to that later. Um, but in the daily horrific news, if anyone wants to follow this conflict, war, whatever it is, about decapitations and the mass abduction, mutilation, and violation and murder of young women, the, um, uh, the endless, almost gratuitous, decadent, perverse, innovative sadism with which this war is being fought. The most, in its way, the most awful news is that is the fairly regular mass executions of young people in the rehab centers trying to get off hard drugs. They, it happens with a depressing regularity usually unreported uh, this side of the Atlantic. Um, and so in this war, which the headline term, or the thumbnail sketch of which is it's a war, quotes, between the narco cartels for the smuggling routes into the United States, unquote, this just didn't seem to fit. Anyway, I just went to spend a night with, uh, a few nights actually, in, uh, one night in this one and other nights in other, these rehab centers to find <coughs> out who these people were. And this is how a day starts. These are the victims of not the war, but its raw material, drugs. But any night now, 
not yet so far, these ones, uh, they could become the victims of the killing too. The possession, procession of the possessed sets out soon after the quickening of the eastern sky, while the sun is still low and meanders its way along the littered bank of dying grass beside Route 45 as the road departs the raggedy outskirts of Ciudad Juarez, heading towards Nuevo Casas Grandes. There are 113 of them walking like marionettes, some mumbling to themselves, some shrieking out loud, others laughing awkwardly or else silently lost in fretted, crazy thought. They are patients of Vision en Acción, a rehabilitation centre and mental asylum on the chewed-up edges of the city for people enduring the hallucinogenic horror of withdrawal from crack cocaine, crystal meth, heroin, methamphetamine, blue water, glue, and the rest. Some are just schizophrenics to whom no other place would open a door and have found themselves in the company of the recovering addicts. They all love this walk. They do it three times a week for exercise, and the outings are its high points. And no wonder the patients spend most of their rest of their lives within the concrete walls and behind the armed doors of the rehab compound where the desert strewn with old tires and garbage meets the gangrened urban outskirts, just past an army checkpoint and the one last OXO convenience store before the open road. Some of them even live behind bars in cages, padlocked for the safety of others and themselves. Some are former killers, some are former nurses, some are former drug traffickers, some are former strippers, others are former teachers. But all, most all of them, were drug addicts, now clean, but journeying through an inner landscape of nightmare and cold turkey. Indeed, it had been quite a night, punctuated by cries, screeching and lament, piercing the still of the desert, and the rattling of metal bars against the chains and locks that bound them. But the night has passed now, its phantoms dispelled with the dew on the creosote bushes and discarded tyres, and as the caravan of the mad makes its way along the roadside, the walkers gesticulate wildly at passing cars, at each other, at thin air, or whatever monstrosity or delight they see in their mind's eye. Some motorists look aghast at this surreal parade and swerve away from it across the road, lest something untoward happened at close range through the car window. Others, though, are regulars along the route and are acquainted with the procession, and even some of the individuals. The driver of a white tanker carrying drinking water hoots and waves, and those walkers who notice the greeting wave back and call out strange acknowledgments in return. Alejandro, wearing leather headgear and goggles for vintage automobile driving, bursts into a jog in pursuit of the truck and then stops, suddenly distracted by something in the distance that has caught his eye, or at least his imagination. He used to deal drugs, he says, all over the world, in China, Japan, and of course, France. There is Manuel, scary... Manuel striding along who keeps trying to kill his mother on advice from a rapper called Mr. Bone who visits his visions escorted by four little witches. And there is Becky, crazy baby as she calls herself, one of the team leaders and in high spirits this morning singing Escucha la, la, sorry, la canción de la alegría. Listen to the song of happiness. Michael D'Antonio needs to wear a diaper only it's come loose and flaps around his thighs as he walks, bare-legged in a motion of semicircles in alternate directions, leaving a trail rather like that of a snake, but occasionally barking like a dog. Twenty-one-year-old Olivia arrived only this morning and now tries to make what she can of her new circumstances, clutching at a doll. Crazy baby Becky takes it upon herself to keep the newcomer company and makes sure she feels welcome. Up on the road ahead, uh, on the road itself, sorry, at the edge of the tarmac is Josue Rosales, the man who keeps Vision and Acción ticking day to day, a former heroin dealer and street gang fighter in Los Angeles, he now sees to the running of the refuge, and this morning must act as sheepdog to ensure that no one wanders onto Route 45 and under a truck. Like the one carrying groceries, a big one, which now passes by with a hooting salute to the parade that sounds like a great mechanical fart, and, and the more cognizant walkers call back, knowing this driver well, Senor Oxo, hola, Oxo! 
the name on the, the store chain emblazoned on the vehicle's side. But Maricela, once a topless dancer, prostitute and crack addict, lags behind in silence. She's had a hard time so far today, troubled by muchas memorias, and has been tearfully worried that the pastor who runs this remarkable institution might be late and the walk not happen. But she worried needlessly, for here he is up front leading the way, José Antonio Galvan, who established and directs Vision and Acción. He wears a full head of silver hair, 1950s style, his trousers tucked into his boots, and he carries a long wooden staff to steady his long stride, adding to the biblical feel uh, of this exodus to nowhere in particular along the road two miles and back again. He too, from time to time, breaks into a jog, then walks to talk a while. This is the human junkyard, says the pastor, with a sweep of his arm around the flock. He was one of them once, a streetwise kid from Juarez who lived illegally in L.A. and El Paso, got deported, became a drug addict on the streets back home, and hit rock bottom, man, the very bottom, before I was saved by the Lord. We are the people no one wanted, he says, with a kind of pride, cast out. This is where they send the trash that no one else wants. I run a recycling center for human trash. I take the scrap people off the street and treat them like human beings when they come to us. They're not junkies or working women anymore. They're not orphans. They're as much God's children as anyone. So just you think about this brother back there in the city. The sicarios are killing children. People are kidnapping and raping, killing young girls. People are torturing each other and other people to death. They're cutting off each other's heads off. In here, we're doing none of that. Here, we're still alive, helping each other, not killing each other. Here, you can shout out loud and walk around naked with your diaper falling off and no one will judge you or bother you. In fact, we'll hug you. We're crazy here, but we have love and we have been saved. Well, all things being relative, the pastor had a point. In the human junkyard of Ciudad Juarez, the procession of the possessed is, in its peculiar way, a procession of the saved. So, what on earth is going on? Um, that's never happened before. Um, what's going on? Um, and I wanted to sort of uh, give it another five, Kirsty. Yeah. Um, it, it clearly is more. This is this isn't narco cartels uh, fighting for the smuggling route into the United States. It was originally. There's much more happening here. Um, and I sort of yes, to trace the origins and causes of this war. It is like any mafia war, a battle between criminal syndicates. But it's so much more besides that there are riptides underneath this thing that, uh, that, that seem to sort of t to explain this phenomenon and the murder of people like that. But it happens quite, you know, it's every month or so someone just comes in and wipes these people out. Uh, and there, I, I, I went to one of these places about 12 hours after it happened in the, after the, actually El Grito, the cry of independence in 2009. And the people in the neighborhood thought that the machine gun fire was part of the fireworks display. We went around and you could see uh, a, a very efficient death squad had gone round this, this, this rehab centre, sticky blood everywhere, all the things I keep trying to avoid in places like Italy and New York. Um, and um, uh, a, a very efficient death squad. That was one puzzling thing. Police, army, former policemen working for a cartel, police officers in the service of a cartel. Um, and then beneath that is, is, is the <coughs> economics of all this, and this is what really got me interested. These cities on, in the north of, of Mexico um, have, I mean, everything that's happened to sort of South Wales and Merseyside over a century and a half has happened with a remarkable speed. 
we keep hearing all the time, and we can talk more if, if you want about migration, dying in the desert, wanting to, to risk your life to go and uh, look after children, clean toilets and mow lawns in the United States. But most people get up to the Mexican border, to a Mexico, to stay on the border and work on the Mexican side in the, what are called the Magiladoras. They are bonded sweatshop factories um, uh, uh, for sort of duty-free export into the United States. It's like having the third world in your back garden and it's a lot cheaper to, to cross the Rio Grande than it is the Yangtze in, into the US. Um, but actually, it's not always, because um, what's happening uh, with, with, uh, is that these cities uh, um, um, uh, uh, burgeoned, they were built on a basis of criminal impunity. All of them don't have time now to go through the uh, urbanization of these places, but they are places where you cannot send your children to school because it takes too far to get there, where your house is built on a swamp, etc., etc. Um, uh, and there is no electricity, there is no running water. Um, good too expensive. Uh, politicians can't be bothered to pay for that kind of thing. A bit, a bit like we're going to be here in 10 years' time. Um, and, um, but no, but seriously, there is a cautionary tale because, because it's, this, is, this is about globalisation. This is not just about Mexico. And, um, but the difference is that when all the jobs go in a place like Ohio or Michigan or South Wales, and Mersey, there's really nothing else left to do. This, this is a call centre. Um, but in, in these cities, there is. Uh, because 90% uh, of the drugs consumed in the United States pass through your town. Um, and so the whole thing, and I won't go into all this now, is, you know, it, it, it starts to tie in with free trade, with NAFTA. Uh, this is the busiest com commercial border in the world. Um, Nuevo Laredo, where it started, uh, is the busiest commercial border crossing in the world. 40% of all the trade between the US and Mexico, and that includes everything that comes in through China into the Mexican port of Lazaro Cárdenas and up through the border, which is where it's all going now because the ships can't pass through the Panama Canal anymore, they're too big. Um, uh, the, the, the officials in the town will tell you it's extraordinary, it's too tin pot, dusty little places, didn't like the streets until quite recently. Um, we'll tell you that 3% is the rough guess of the, of the amount of contraband that coming, coming through. 3% of $340 billion worth of trade is a hell of a lot of contraband. Um, so it's uh, this, this porosity, harsh, uh, this dichotomy. Uh, we want free trade, but that means, but, but and then and then there's, there's another layer beneath this. And let's get back to the beginning of the last shutter. Um, is is that it's very important? To, yes, it is a war between narco cartels like the mafia wars, like the Russian syndicate wars, like Colombia to a degree. But this has now killed 300, sorry, 34,000 people in a very short period of time. Every year the death toll increases on the last year. It's going down a spiral. It's 20 minutes walk from the United States where this is happening, um, over the bridges. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. It's the place I wanted to write about before it became a, a book about war. But these cartels are not pastiches of the global economy. They are pioneers of it. It was not Coca-Cola or Microsoft that was the first corporations from the West into Eastern Europe. It was the Camorra of Naples, which you know from the Camorra, buying up the Kalashnikovs and sending them on to Africa. Uh, look what happened two years later. Um, it was not uh, the, uh, the textile companies, Primark and et al, that were the first to bring textiles in from China, made in China. It was the Camorra of Naples and the sweatshops. The, the narco is always ahead of the game. So that's why I wanted to talk about sort of witnessing new wars rather than new ways to witness war, because from my way, it's sort of the same old way, reluctantly and terrified. Um, <laughs> but, and the awful thing is that it's such a wonderful place. It's, you know, the colours are bright, the, the welcome is warm, the smile is ready, and the Mexicans and the Americans are now looking at the first generation that will not, in the history of both countries, 
which we'll never be able to enjoy and savour the, the, the joys of this place. Thank you. your way around somewhere like Ciudad Juarez, you know, where you can presumably get shot just walking down the street or, you know, shot while you're spending the night in a drug rehab center. Yes, yes, you have. Um, and and, it's, and it's, it's, for journalists, uh, it's catastrophic, this war. It's, uh, the estimates are between 38 and 58 killed. Um, uh, so, sorry, that includes the disappeared. Um, and your fear is, I think, is sort of kidnapped. They're not interested in sort of shooting very quickly in these places. Um, the um, I, I, I broke my foot, uh, which was a, a godsend, by kicking a developer's board on Liverpool Art School in rage um, <laughs> a couple of weeks before going. And so I was on crutches. That was an immediate advantage because if you sort of swagger I thought that around, was a disadvantage. no, because if you if you swagger around these places, then then they, then they think you sort of copper walk and. So that was advantage, and being bald and on crutches in my 50s was um, I know it sounds stupid, but I, I wore a Barcelona football shirt with Marquez on the back, who was the captain of Mexico, playing at number four. So that means that the second question is, what the hell are you doing? And the first question is, why have you got a Barcelona football shirt? But then you, I mean, I know it sounds stupid, and, but it, it, well, as you both know, these things, you know, that, that instant, that first thing does matter a lot. But then I'm lucky, um, and in some places the newspapers have simply stopped reporting this. In Nueva Laredo, the police chief was, was executed there after seven hours in office, uh, and the local paper didn't report a thing. They simply you know, took the editor up for a little ride in a van and said, silencio. Um, in Ciudad Juarez, uh, there is a newspaper called El Diario, and uh, as we all agreed, if the Pulitzer panel wants to make life easy for themselves this year, they'll just give the, all the prizes to the staff of El Diario. It's only 10 minutes walk away from the US, after all. Um, uh, but you know, they, 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 they work at their peril every day. Um, and 38, between, but estimates vary, between 38 and 58 journalists have been killed. The prohibition of narcotics is um, a policy that originated uh, in the United States. And there are a, a large number aren't there, of senior Latin American politicians, President Calderon included, who now uh, are suggesting actually that legalization is the only, of drugs, is the only way to stop uh, these wars. I mean, is, is, is that a conclusion that, that, that you came to? Uh, no, I, w I went, I went yeah, it, it, this is for what it's worth, um, and I'll say this briefly because people like to talk for a very long time about this. Um, I, I started out thinking that and went the, the other way. Um, uh, this is one of the few institutions left here where you can use the word capitalism, I believe, without anyone <laughs> still in the IMG. Um, and, but um, you know, I, think, I think there is an optimism about the market drugs in the argument. I think there's a sort of slightly sort of neo-hippie optimism about why people take drugs. And after and I, I went off thinking, well, you know, legalise and then the criminals learn nothing to do. Um, well then I thought, well actually why do people take drugs? Yes, I think the people who argue for legalisation think that people take drugs because it makes you horny or makes the party go with a bang or the Grateful Dead sound better. But actually most people take drugs for reasons that are purely self-destructive or destructive. Um, and that's not going to change with legalisation. And you realise, talking to the narcos actually, that I mean, if, okay, if my daughters can go to Boots and buy a, 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 a brand of methamphetamine for £5 a hit that screws your brain up, 
there's nothing to stop the cartels marketing another brand of methamphetamine which will screw your brain up 95% for $2 a hit, and that's what will happen in my view. Well, I'm I mean, I hate, sorry, I hate to paraphrase Blair, because I loathe him, I never voted for him. <laughs> but um, do you we had that expression, tough on crime not, and the causes of crime or something? It turned out to be neither, of course. But, um, I mean, tough on drugs, tough on the causes of drugs is actually a far more interesting way to go, I think. Thank you. Basically follow the money, starting with that. With the uh, I'd like to open the discussion up now, um, and therefore uh, bring in um, you, the audience. Um, I know I'm sure I've got uh, plenty of questions. Uh, for our uh, panelists, um, please ask questions rather than uh, make speeches. Um, this gentleman here with the uh, glasses and the binocular. <coughs> Wait for the mic to come to me. I am uh, Jean-Yves Clemenzo, uh, journalist also and student at the LSE. Uh, I was. Uh, a bit struck by the fact that you, you all report uh, on, on the war mainly with at the first person. Uh, it's a very intimate uh, relation to, to, to the war. And I would like to know if its way of reporting is bringing something positive, some new possibilities for the public to, to understand the war, uh, to, to understand the context of the war or if it's a limitation and it's mainly a work for, for yourself. So, I mean, presu presumably this is, a, this is, this is a sort of, one can do far more personal reporting when you write a book than when you're doing your news reporting, is that? Is, is, is yes. Yeah. Is that why they've done my, my question is, uh, you have been, for instance, Jill, you have been working for 20 years in war, war reporting. Uh, my impression, I'm, I'm young, so I, I, I don't know anything, everything, that we, we use much, much more before the, the third person to, to report. You, we had quite a neutral uh, tendency to be objective in reporting. And now, today, you have more and more people speaking with the first person. And I would like to know for the public, for, for everybody, is there, isn't it a danger to sometimes not to understand what happens? but it's mainly your personal experience which is more important than the context. So, Yeah, Jill. Yeah, I think if I'm understanding exactly what you're getting at, so you can tell me if you think I am or not. I'm quite old-fashioned in the sense that I think it's really important to be very clear about the lines that you're drawing. Um, and, and I feel very strongly, and I talked a little bit about the ethical boundaries about fiction and reporting. Uh, and I quite like the old-fashioned style of reporting, which is very specific and factual, um, and yes, usually third-person um, reportage, perhaps to an extent. I'm a little bit more sceptical about the new trend, I think, towards faction uh, and creative non-fiction, uh, which seem to me very often to be um, sometimes a slight hybrid between a an imagined understanding of a situation and at the same time presenting it as non-fiction. Uh, and, and that makes me feel uneasy. I, I feel I want to know where I am um, with something that is either real or it isn't. Uh, and I suppose I've come across this a little bit in writing the book, in that for me I was very clear this was fiction. Yes, I'm drawing in a general sense on the fact I've been to Afghanistan, I know what the landscape looks like, I know what the house looks like and you know, that the lady lives in. Um, but it was very important to me that the, the actual characters and the actual plot were not based on real people or real events. And it slightly alarmed me that some of the, some of the response I've had to the book um, ha has sometimes been, well, I, we know you as a reporter, so is this code 
for some real things that are happening, but you're telling it through fiction because you can't really, for perhaps political reasons, tell it through rep um, you know, reporting. And that fills me with horror, because the answer is no, they are different things and they should be viewed differently. Um, but I think there is a trend at the moment, particularly coming from the States, and we, I feel we normally follow after, about this whole middle merging ground, using narrative techniques and lyrical language, and I say creative nonfiction, um, and imagined, adding the, the imagined to the real. Uh, and generally, I feel quite uncomfortable with that. I feel I want to know what's what. James, do you think there's a tendency now for journalists, if you like, to put to make themselves a part of the story more? Yeah, I think there are two distinct things happening here. On, to try and answer your question, on the one hand, so the last decade, there has been a, an extraordinary acceleration in both techno technologically in the means of news gathering and also in, in the dissemination of news that's gathered. So we're, we're looking at a completely different technological landscape now than we were 10 years ago. It's possible for people to gather information and disseminate it now very widely, globally, in a way that was unthinkable 10 or 15 years ago. And what one of the key things that that does, um, on the one hand, it makes a lot of information available to a lot of people, which is potentially beneficial. On the other hand, it does so quite often without it passing through a filter, and that can be extremely pernicious. So, in tandem with that process, there's been a development of the ways in which stories are told, and people have moved away from a very straightforward third person, I am reporting the news, you know, in a very sort of pseudo-objective manner. And people have realised, I think, largely for, for the good, that the, the main point is that people receive information and that people should be able to receive information in different ways. And if you look at sort of um, the news landscape now, the difference between a news report on the nightly news, what you will read on the web, international current affairs reports, which might range from 24 minutes to an hour, to a long-form piece on Newsnight, they're all very different ways of doing it. And one, of, one particular way of disseminating news, of telling stories, is the authored piece, where a journalist will tell a story, but it will be very much from their perspective. Now, that might be something that airs on Newsnight, it might be something like a series made by someone like Sean Langham, it might be a student blogger that's uh, you know, found that a, a convenient way to tell their, their story. So I think that putting yourself in the story is partly a product of technological accessibility. Frankly speaking, um, you know, the cell phone in my pocket is broadcast quality at a push. And that's, that's brand new. In Liberia, I was the only person that filmed that war. That war happened again now. That wouldn't be the case because everyone would be shooting on their cell phones. It's a totally different landscape. And I think, you know, that it's, the, the question is not does the reporter put too much of themselves into it, because the idea that there's an object, anything like an objective war reporter is just fantasy. The question is does it go through a filter? Who is verifying that what you're seeing is real? And for me, that's the question. Is it a fantasy that we can be objective there, do you think? Um, I think 
I, I agree with James, but, but absolutely. But with, with the caveat that I think we need to be very careful to splice the word objective from the word neutral. Mm -hmm. I think two things happened in the early 90s. Um, I think they happened in Bosnia more than in Iraq. Iraq take one. Um, what, and they went in opposite directions. One was, I think, for the first time, it became, I mean, all the war reporters I admired most, and when I realised that I was going to have to be one of them myself, on, kept themselves totally out of the story. Cameron, those people, they just weren't. They were like cutty aggressive, they were flung on the wall. Um, two things happened in, in, in Bosnia, certainly there was a sort of, you know, I am part of this story. And that culminated in this sort of weird development, the opposite to what James has been describing. Of, everybody filming everything, which is sort of, um, now Christian, what's happening over there? Well, I just, sorry, I shouldn't mention your names, but well, I just talked to a man whose entire family's been watching, oh, well, that's really, and man just told me, that, well, where are they? You know, and it, the whole thing becomes a conversation between reporters, it's extraordinary to watch. The journalist interviewing the journalists. Other, the other thing that was, that was interesting is, um, is by the way, just, is, is, <laughs> is, that, is that Martin Bell came up with this, this term of journalism and attachment, which was, I think, a, 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 a giving up on the whole idea mm. that, we, that we're neutral. And I think, and this became very important in The Hague and, and, and the war crimes tribunal and all that stuff, which is that I think we do always have to be objective, because objectivity is fact-specific. I mean, you know, if, if, if there are 12 bodies in the house, there are not two, because you have to sympathise with that lot, or 20, because you sympathise with that lot, there are 12. That's sacrosanct. But neutrality... Because you, of course, will be, were the first journalist to give evidence in the Hague. Yes, because I don't want to be neutral between a camp guard and the inmates. I don't want to be now objective about mm. what happened in the camp, but I don't want to be objective between the woman who's raped all night every night and the soldiers who are raped. And I think this neutrality, we've got to splice those. I don't like journalism, these very much, but I, mean, I think we have to splice those two things very importantly. Next question, uh, lady at the back. You want to just wait until the microphone reaches you. And I'll come to you next. You just mentioned about um, the importance of being objective in reporting. I personally don't think that's possible. But um, that's probably me just being very sceptical. But how objective do you think you can be when you're an embedded journalist living with the troops? And then you can, see, you can only see things from their perspective, really. How objective do you think you can really be? I'm guessing that's coming to me. Yeah. Um, before I do embedding, I suppose, I mean, yes, objectivity, what does it mean? Of course, everyone is, you're making choices all the time. You're selecting, I'm going to interview this person. When I interview them, I'm going to take this clip. I'm going to focus on this angle. This is what I think is interesting. This is what I think is important. You know, those are choices that we make because of the people we are, what we think will make a news story, but also what matters to us. So in that sense, there's no um, divine objective truth in news. But I think what is important is that you keep testing yourself and that you're striving to try and be fair and be balanced and that you don't let yourself, um, what, what you be might believe in as, as a person, get in the way of what you believe in as a journalist, which is that everyone has the right to speak and that you try and be as, as fair and balanced as you can be. In terms of the whole issue of embedding, uh, it's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, I couldn't be in Hellmand unless I were embedded. Um, you know, somebody from the BBC Pashto service who was Afghan was shot dead last year, um, who was based there. Uh, as a white person and a Westerner, I couldn't be there, I don't feel, um, and report and, and have the access I had when I was embedded. Uh, is it ideal? Would I prefer to be independent? It's not ideal. Of course I prefer to be independent, but that's, that's kind of the choice that you make. Um, I think that when you're with the troops, most of us as journalists are conscious of the restraints, and you're spending a lot of time trying to 
work round them. Uh, and one of the embeds I did, for example, was looking very specifically not at military strategy or what, it, what is it like to be, be a soldier or what, what's in your ration pack in the evening or how, how do you sleep at night or all those things. So I felt the military experience was being very well covered. And I wanted to look at the development experience and what um, people in Hellman thought about the troops. Uh, and I have to say I was pleasantly surprised that although my overall report was ended up being very critical about what the government was saying at the time about the success of the development program, and, and my, I did a half an hour documentary that I think was largely saying actually it wasn't being successful in, in the views of what it was achieving. Um, the, the military was very good in knowing that that's what I was covering, and they never said, they, they never censored anything I wrote um, or broadcast, and they never said no to me when I put in a request to, to um, you know, I'd like, to go, I'd like to go out into the bazaar and try and talk to ordinary people about uh, you know, how they feel being in the shadow of your base. That would require them to have 30 Marines out with me, being shot at, in danger, out of the base, so I could go and do those interviews. And they would stand away from me, around me, but while I talked to those people, is that a great way of interviewing people? Of course not. You know, they know I, I've come with that and I'm wearing a flat jacket and I'm a Westerner. Uh, on the other hand, they, weren't stand they were sensitive enough not to be right there over you, and, and they're, they're doing it for me, in effect. You know, they, they needn't have left that, the base that day. Um, so I felt that given it's a not great situation, my experiences of being embedded in Afghanistan have been that I felt the military was doing the best it could to be sensible about it. Is it the, I mean, I've only covered one war, which was uh, Croatia, like, uh, um, uh, which I kind of again ended up in rather by accident. But I remember the one piece of advice that I was taught doing that was that the most your most dangerous moment is when you cross the line from one side to the other. And so even though there was no kind of official embedding at that point, I did to a certain extent embed myself with either the <laughs> Croatian National Guard or the uh, JNA or you know and 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 later in Bosnia. I mean, you have to find protection. You can't just wander around in the middle of, uh, of a war zone. I mean, to a certain extent, James, when you were in Liberia, you were, with the, the, you were sort of unofficially embedded with, with, with the rebels, weren't you, I suppose? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I mean, you yeah. moved with them, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, the, the, the similarities were that uh, there was the, a rebel army called, marvellously, called the Lerd. nicknamed, I can't believe it's not Lerd, who um, were fighting to overthrow the government of Charles Taylor. Um, in, and they were, the Lerd were based in the north, Taylor's government was located in Monrovia in the south. Um, and I, I travelled with them to the point where, I mean, I think that the whole time I was there, I was with them. They were, I was dependent upon Nick and them for my security. I was absolutely reliant upon them to feed me. Um, to give me water, to help with shelter, and it's, you know, I mean, it's really difficult for um, a notorious white Afrikaans-speaking mercenary and a six-foot-four English white bloke to blend in with a rebel army <laughs> in West Africa. But anyway, we gave it a shot, and, um, you know, we very purposely didn't wear body armour. I never, never wore body armour. Um, we ate exactly the same food that they did. We walked the same distances that they did. We slept in the same places that they did. Um, because originally this walk we were supposed to go on was only going to last two weeks, we took nothing with us. And we ended up walking um, just over 300 miles um, through the forest together. 
So by the time we sort of been in combat together, we they just accepted the fact that you were there with them doing what you did with them. And I think that's quite a common experience of, of embedding, is that eventually you become wallpaper. And you just, you know, people just accept that you're there. Um, you know, one has to be constantly on one's lookout for Stockholm Syndrome. And to make, to make sure that the people that you are reliant upon for your safety uh, are not, you're not cutting them any slack. Um, because of that, and as I feel it's the idea neutrality, objectivity. I mean, you know, angels, angels on pinheads. I don't know. I, for me, in in, if in, a, in an extremely active frontline environment as a journalist at war, there will inevitably come a point at which you need to exercise your own inalienable natural right of um, of self-defence. And the point at which you do that, however you do it, is the point at which you automatically participate. And I think at that point it is extremely difficult to say that you are, that you're neutral, and then however one defines objective. Do you want to come in? Just very quickly, yeah, because it's got to be an absolutely great change. I think it's sort of this, I mean, I've never been embedded with an army, like you have, um, but self-embedded mm -hmm. with a Guerrilla army, amazing people. That, that was purely because I, simply, I, I wanted them to win. <laughs> I make their bones <laughs> and like, um, but, but just a variation on the thing in Iraq. I mean, we just there was a time between the end of the war, the 2003, and when it got really on, when you, when you could drive around not yeah. embedded. Yeah. May, June 2003, but part in month, you wouldn't want to do that a couple of months later. Um, and that's why, in a way, I think. So, there, is, there, is, there are valid points in, in, in both ways. But one of the new things about this, this Mexican business, and I think we're going to see more of this, is, is it's, it was quite hard to, to, to talk to editors and others about um, the fact that you know, even Al-Qaeda wanted to talk to Peter Bergen and the KCN. I mean, even the Bosnian Serbs, well, they didn't want to talk to me, but they, wanted, you know, they felt they had a point. About, Why are we doing this? I mean, they, you know, they had an equivalent of the the press operation, I don't know whether Julius Streicher did, but I mean there was an, an argument. It's quite, this is a, a, one of the many new things about this. A, it's a war about nothing. You know, it's about drugs at best and getting the right t-shirt because the t-shirt in the right SUV gets you the right cheek that the t-shirt you had last year won't. I mean, it's, it's as banal and horrible and postmodern in the 21st century as that. But the other new thing is these people have no interest in talking to you whatsoever. They don't want to, they don't want you to know. They have nothing to say to you. They don't want you there. They don't want to be in the papers. They want to do it in this post. Their their exhibition, if you like, is not is to kill you if they see you, you come anywhere near them, or to control you in the newsroom. But their thing is going to be decapitations on YouTube. It's going to be uh, people hung up with no heads by their ankles from bridges. That's the show, and I think it's a very important why that's the show. I don't. I'm not quite sure. I've got a few ideas, but you know. So. In, indirectly, this is about embedding. There, there is no contact with these people. You can't go up to the Zetas, which is the military of the Gulf cartel, and say, they can't hang with you guys. <laughs> because, because you would end up dying a very slow death just yeah. for asking. Um, this is new.
blog, blogging, I, you know, on the blogging thing, I, I, can, I, can, you, can you do blogging? Because I, I just, I don't, I don't really get it. <laughs> I'm not going to ask that. And to, just to answer your question, I will very super, I promise, super quickly, read you one paragraph. Um, um, which is um, in answer to about Nick and Warts and all. Um, I sent him the unexpurgated manuscript and he replied by email. Um, on first reading the book, he wrote this by return. James, I read the draft. Not too bad. <laughs> you never shared your inner feelings and doubts with me, but it's good you do bring it out in the book. It makes me look like an asshole at times, but the epilogue does put things a little back into perspective. Thanks also for your loyalty to me. In the end, what matters is our friendship, which nobody can take away from us, and I'm sure you trust me enough to go with me again. Not that I'm planning anything like that. <laughs> Jill, blogging. Blogging. Um, do you blog? No. No. <laughs> under sure pressure, though, under pressure. pressure. Yeah, well, life's too short, it feels like. But, and there are so many outlets for the BBC if you blogged as well, and you know you would get no sleep at all. Um, I suppose it. I suppose it depends what sort of blogging it is, doesn't it? Really, what, what, it, what category it's going to come into, because it's fundamentally about content rather than form. It's uh, most blogging that I read. I suppose is, is a form of either opinion <coughs> or reportage, um, which is a style of journalism. It's not pure. It's not traditional journalism in the, in the sense that I suppose I was schooled in, uh, and maybe I'm being very old-fashioned in wanting to cling to it, um, but. As James was saying earlier, this, there, there is this emphasis now on the personal experience, on putting yourself at the scene. Sometimes it's about emoting for the reader on their behalf, uh, and a lot of that colours reportage. I think now that there is, a, I mean, obviously there's a place for it because people are interested in it, but I also think there's a place for the more old-fashioned, traditional, clearly defined type of journalism where you're, you're describing what is real as much as you can. There's one thing quickly on that. It was just to remind me. As an executive producer, I've worked with a lot, and um, uh, a, a, a cameraman, producer, director, come back from filming, and he come back, good story, but and he digitised all of his material and logged it in the field. He was super proud of himself, and he came back and said to his, his, his executive producer, "Look, I've got the film, and also I've done, you know, several days worth of post-production work right here." And the EP went absolutely mad. So, what the fuck weren't you filming? What are you spending all those hours doing that for? You could, this could be a much better film. What were you thinking? I think that's kind of how I feel about blogging. I'm not hugely so encouraged that this is the last, well, probably the first, but the last time you good people will ever be <laughs> facing a panel of three people. None of them. I think we're the only ones. I mean, I'd like to think that. Right, I'm rather more pessimistic, and I, I feel it's time to count the days to the to, to you know the, the retirement with an Olivetti 32 typewriter and <laughs> the vinyl, the vinyl, the music on the vinyl. Now we've got five minutes left, an awful lot of hands going up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take several questions at once and then just get the panel to um, answer them rapid fire. Uh, gentleman first in the I was just wanting to add briefly on the subject of, of my blog. There was a 
lunchtime session with Timothy Garton Ash. And he quoted the example of um, somebody on the New York Times who had a very restrictive editor. And so getting out from under the editor is another reason that Sandra is currently employed. Yes. Um, um, yes, yeah, sure. Okay, where are you going next? A man at the back, what do you want to ask? <coughs> I just want to ask you, Jane, if I could, um, maybe a question <coughs> to answer briefly, but the striking passage you gave us from the end of your book there about the scene of your daughter and your film, obviously um, quite different experiences presumably making and preparing. What can you tell us about the storytelling for a different media about the similar related experiences? Okay, this lady here. Just wondering if the like I'm going to be doing quite an interesting um, <laughs> investigation in London once. Last year or two it's been all Pakistan for me and I'd really like next to go back to Afghanistan and do an, an investigation there if I can get it off the ground. Um, I can answer two questions at once because, yeah. uh, because uh, I agree with this, 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 this cyclist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to uh, <laughs> I don't know, what can I tell you? I mean, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge topic. I think really um, TV falls into um, that uh, category of the description of um, short story writing, which is doing the difficult thing with lucidity and brevity. And this is an unchecked ego romp. <laughs> so I, I think that... Um, and would you do it, it again? Was it hard to do? Would I, would I do it again? Um, absolutely, yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I enjoyed the process of writing. Um, I'll be very careful how I choose my words here. I enjoyed the process of writing a very great deal, more so than a number of films I've made. Jill, how will you fill in five years' time if your book is taught? Mm. Okay, Carwell University in the English Lit Department. Uh, I'd be um, obviously delighted and thrilled. Uh, it would be fascinating for me to know what people in Hellman, and particularly the kind of characters I was writing about, would make of it. 
Uh, and obviously, it's, I, I can't know what their lives are like, really. You know, how can I possibly? I'm, I'm a Westerner and they're Afghan. Um, and this was a leap of the imagination, a sympathetic leap of the imagination. Uh, and I'd love to know what they think. So if there comes a time where the kind of people I'm writing about and a main character who was married at 14 and, and is, was uneducated, in my story, uh, from a small village, it gets to the stage that someone <coughs> like her is educated and is reading fiction and, and blogging me or, or emailing me or something, um, it would be fantastic, tweeting me perhaps, to tell me about it, then um, that would be that would be wonderful. And the process of writing, would you do it again? Oh, I do it all the time, yes. I mean, you love writing. I love writing fiction, it's not work, it's addictive, and, and as you said, this is actually my, the eighth or ninth novel I've written, I always write, and I've already finished the next one, it's coming out in August, um, and yes, I'm just starting to think of it, I'm quite bereft at the moment, but I'm not into the third one yet, but I will be soon. And I'm afraid that is all we've got time for, so let me just thank our guests, and very <laughs>